Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 14. As we continue our journey through Matthew's record of the good news, here with a passage that I think probably many of us have known and loved since we were we little ones in the Sunday school in the church that we grew up in, having probably watched this one on the flannel graph a number of times, I'm assuming. This is God's Word, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. He said to them, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's ask God's blessing. Uh, Lord, you have spoken in the reading of your word. Would you please now speak in its preaching? Give light and understanding, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, I enjoyed for years, many of you know this, being a youth pastor in our denomination. I had the privilege of of pastoring, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 youth for uh, three and a half years or so. It was an enjoyable time. One of, uh, I loved teaching the Bible to them. It was fantastic getting to see uh, how they interacted with the scriptures over the years and watching them grow and develop, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, to see them, you know, learn the Bible and to learn how to pray and all those sorts of things. And uh, marvelous for my soul uh, to grow up in such a way, but uh, had additional little benefits along the way. Uh, One of those benefits was to be able to do silly games and silly activities with them. And every summer we would go to the local water park where we'd get to do all of the various things that you do at a water park, which were tons of fun. Uh, My favorite, though, always was not the giant, you know, slide that you go down or the lazy river or any of those sorts of things. My favorite activity of all of them is always and always has been the lily pads. If you know what those are at the water park, they're inner tubes that have some sort of kind of hard covering stretched over the top of them uh, that are chained to the bottom of the pool, but the chain is about, we'll say, maybe two feet too long. 
so that when you put any light pressure, it doesn't move. Right, a small child of you know, 20, 30 pounds, 40 pounds can just skip across and bounce from one to one and it's no problem. But you put an adult on it or even a high school kid and the second you put any weight on the lily pad, it goes shooting off to the side, which always is just marvelous fun. The fun part though to watch was you could see how like the little brains would work of like, I know this is a safe place to stand. It looks solid, it looks large, my friend just scampered across, it's a trustworthy place to stand. Was that an accurate assumption? Well, no, of course not. Absolutely not. In fact, actually, it's the least safe place to stand probably in the entire water park. It's fantastic because the second they put their weight on it, whoop, out it goes, and then feet high up in the sky, and they're dumped off backwards. And it was just absolute, just marvelous fun. And I think at the core of it, it was so marvelous because it was one of those kind of really rare times where you get to see a faulty assumption worked out so obviously and with such catastrophic results about three and a half seconds after it happens. Assumption, this is a safe thing for me to step on. Consequence, wreck. So quickly and so, uh, you know, cause and effect so easily witnessed of, of how you can take something that looks so good, it makes so much sense, your brain tells you that it's absolutely rock solid true, and a couple of moments later, your whole world's upside down and you're getting dunked in the pool. Now, I like that as a great object lesson because I think for many of us, that's how much of our life has been spent placing hopes and dreams and trust in things that are actually not the way that we think that they are. The, the difficulty for us is that the cause and effect ends up getting separated by weeks or months or years, sometimes even decades. And so we don't get that kind of instantaneous feet in the sky dunked in the pool. Hey, maybe I probably shouldn't do it quite that way next time. Uh, We get to see really in the scriptures how often the disciples function in that similar way for us. They bring faulty assumptions to the table. They make intellectual mistakes. And we get to watch the cause and effect almost instantaneously because of how the Lord tells the scriptures In this section here, we're going to watch, again, a a famous passage that many of us know quite well, a famous passage in which the disciples are uh, thinking the right thing, you would think. They, They look at a circumstance, they look at a situation, and much like the lily pads, they say, well, this is exactly how this has to be. This is how I'm going to read the circumstances in front of me. These are the assumptions I'm going to bring to the table. Problem is, guess what? They're wrong. Not only are they wrong in one thing, they're actually wrong in a number of things is how they view the situation before them. Now, I guess to understand this, we need a little bit of background. The way Matthew's been telling us the story of uh, this gospel, his record of the good news, it's, he's been framing it kind of largely from the perspective of the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of Christ look like? Well, it, it looks like holiness, chapters 5 through 7. We get to see the Sermon on the Mount, which frames out a new ethic that deals with, with the heart, not just with the hands. He's making explicit that which was a bit more implicit in the Old Testament. The same truth, God cares about the heart. 
And then working out really from eight even to this point, new truths about God's kingdom and then how we're supposed to feel about it and new truths about God's kingdom and how we're supposed to act in light of that. Chapter 14 really kind of marks a little bit of a, a, a trajectory change. It's almost like an interlude. Where at the beginning of it, you see John the Baptist is murdered. He's murdered for uh, standing up for biblical truth, standing up for biblical ethics, and it's uh, really quite gruesome. Remember, his head is taken off and served on a platter at the middle of a really um, uncomfortable feast, we might say. It's with that backdrop that we, we see in verse 13, Jesus hears of John's death. He hears of, verse 12, the disciples coming and taking John's body and going and burying it. And he withdraws from the place where he is, Nazareth, to a desolate place en route to Capernaum. If you paid attention to the sermon last week, Jesus here is a master tactician because he's leaving the land governed by Herod and going to the land governed by Philip, Herod's brother, whose wife Herod has just stolen, who is angry with Herod. The the two brothers are not at peace, and so Jesus has left the land that would get him killed to go to the place that would likely be a safer haven, playing the two terrible brothers against themselves. Uh, we find out from Mark, as he tells the same story in chapter 6, that at this point, Jesus and the disciples are exhausted. Uh, they're worn out, they're weary. In fact, before they get in the boat, John's description is uh, there were so many people coming and going that they had no leisure even to eat. Jesus and his disciples have been working so hard, he hasn't even had time to stop and eat. So many of us know that feeling, I would suggest probably young moms, where you, you kind of come to about three in the afternoon and you're like, I'm still in my PJs, I haven't brushed my teeth, I don't know if I've brushed my hair today, and I'm not sure if I've eaten. It's a busy day and I've been taking care of little ones. Jesus understands his life was structured similarly. And interestingly, as he... Uh, responds to this weariness, hops in a boat, he and his disciples, and they go to cross a portion of the lake, not the entirety of it. They're not going this way. They're kind of cutting the corner off of it, and the crowds figure out where he's headed. Well, he's been in Nazareth, which is uh, his home territory, but he's moving back to Capernaum, his home base. Capernaum is where he's been operating out of, and they're going to figure that out. So they guess, well, if he's going to take a maybe leisurely boat ride, we probably can hoof it and make it around the corner of the lake and beat him. And that's exactly what they do. They've followed him. They've, in essence, outrun him. And when he gets to where he uh, is, a, you know, his point of arrival in verse 14, there's a massive crowd waiting. Again, best guess, we're thinking probably, I don't know, 12,000 people, 14,000 people. We we don't exactly know. They only counted the men, um, but the men themselves, 5,000, you think it's much larger than that. This is a huge conglomeration of people, particularly in the day in which they're living. And I can imagine exactly how we might process that circumstance, wouldn't we? I mean, you know how you would do it, how I would do it. We'd we'd have the the boat kind of pushing up to the shore, and you'd start seeing people starting to gather, and you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. 
And as you get closer and see that the crowd is larger than you first thought, and it spreads not just on the shore, but up into the actual ground itself, and oh, it might actually even extend over the hills over there, and oh, I'm just, I'm just tired of people, I need a break. I'm just, I'm just worn out. I need a time to recharge my batteries. I need a, a, a little bit of alone time. I'm going to go crazy. If I, if I see another person, I might just scream. Interestingly, is that the path that Jesus chooses? I love how Matthew highlights for us here, showcasing the heart of the Lord Jesus. And the first thing I'd like for us to just pause and contemplate momentarily Verse 14, when Jesus goes ashore, he saw a great crowd, and rather than yelling at them, rather than being frustrated with them, rather than just calling them all buffoons and wanting to kind of motor on, rather than groaning silently but putting on a stiff upper lip, he showcases his heart and has compassion. And as if that weren't enough, showcases his heart by having compassion on them and then beginning to heal their sick. And again, remember, they don't have uh, modern medicine the way that we do today where, you know, if you have a toothache, you can go to the dentist or you have something that's really wrong, you can go to the doctor. And we even have the abilities now, by God's mercy, to see inside the body without having to cut it open. While it's still living and breathing and moving, we have x-rays and MRI machines and all kinds of marvelous things in the time in which this is taking place. If you hurt, there was a decent chance that hurt would kill you at some point. And Jesus shows unbelievable compassion. Rather than showing up and dispersing the crowd, rather than getting there and saying, you bozos, this is why I was in the boat in the first place, is to get away from all of you, Yutzes, he instead shows kindness. Healing their sick, showing tenderness and ministry to them. And it's amazing how, again, intellectually, I think we, we tend to know this, but this is one of those great elements of life where though we intellectually understand that Christ is at his core compassionate, we, we so often forget that that's how he interacts with us. When it comes time for us to, to think about how our emotions view our Savior, do we think of him as being compassion incarnate? I mean, you realize that's what it is. He, he is compassion put in flesh. And yet so many of us, when we go to pray, we have this kind of lingering word in the back of our mind that God's out to get us. We have this lingering suspicion that God really is just rather ticked off at us. He just keeps it better restrained than I do. And it's intriguing how, again, Jesus is showcasing his heart here. He, he has a multitude of holy options. He, he could have kept a holy boundary and said, you people need to go away, I'll see you tomorrow. But instead showcasing what his disposition is to his people is that of compassion incarnate. He understands 
He knows and He helps. Now, I suspect many of us uh, forget this again. We may understand intellectually, we get it, but it, it gets trapped in the back of our minds and we forget to think about this. And it's one of the reasons that our love for Christ Jesus is lacking so much warmth. Right? Our, our, our love is prone to grow cold. It's prone to you know, just kind of mm, get ordinary. And so often I suspect it's because we've forgotten that when Christ looks at you, it is only, if you are the child of God, it is only through the lens of compassion. So that every bit of difficulty that you have this week or next week or the week to come, it is only processed through the lens of Christ's compassion. And that's going to be extremely important as, as we see the further interchange that takes place, that Christ is compassion incarnate because what happens following? Jesus works so hard, the entire day is spent either sailing or then healing. A massive crowd, people probably pressing in on every side, and as the sun begins to set, it begins to get dark. The disciples kind of abscond him away for a moment to have a a private conversation with him. And they respond in verse 15, Jesus, this place is nowhere. We haven't made it to town yet. We are in the absolute middle of nowhere. Send the crowds away to go into the villages. Now, I love they have to use plural here because this is such a large crowd. There's no local village that could handle a crowd this size. If all of these people went into the same, it'd be like stopping in at a a Chick-fil-A on a Monday afternoon with a tour bus filled with 7,000 people. Like Chick-fil-A is great, man. They can handle some people. They can't handle 7,000 people in one go. Instead, they would have to kind of raid the entire region to find food enough to have all of these people to feed themselves. And on top of that, the amount of money that would be needed would be almost a year's wages. It would be an obscene amount of money. And so the disciples, verse 15, kind of go into problem-solving mode. Uh, It's nighttime. We're all hungry. We have a massive crowd. We have Jesus. We don't have any resources. So what's the problem we're going to solve? Well, you send them away. That's the solution. Send them away. In verse 16, Jesus gives them the first answer that's really going to begin to expose uh, their misconceptions of who he is and how he interacts with his church. It almost sounds like he's trolling them. It's not. I think actually what he's doing is he's giving them the sort of answer that forces their mistakes to be made obvious. (laughs) Jesus, verse 16, says, they don't need to go. I mean, they can sleep out here in the grass. They don't need to go. It's fine. You feed them. I would love to have seen this. I can't wait to ask about it when we get to heaven to see the the facial reactions that go between the disciples. He said, we're supposed to feed them. Have you seen how many people there are out there? 
even if we had money, there's no store to buy food for this amount of people. There's no village nearby we could go to that would have enough bread to feed all these people. There's literally no solution that can solve the problem except to send them away and let them sort it themselves. You see, that's actually what Jesus' response is highlighting for them. There is no way this problem gets solved by normal humans. It's impossible. If you had the money, you don't have the store to buy the bread. If you had the bread, it probably wouldn't have fit in the boat. It wouldn't have been big enough to carry it. Interestingly, the disciples' solution is just to pass the buck and let, look, let the, the miserable, hungry people solve it themselves. We'll figure out ourselves, they figure out themselves, and we'll be all right. And Jesus instead gives them this great challenge with you feeding them, in, in essence, to showcase their faulty assumptions. And again, what's the assumption? The assumption I've said is already there. No normal human can fix this. Well, that's the problem. Jesus is a normal human. He's fully human. He also happens to be fully God and happens to be compassion incarnate. Compassion in human form so that when they go to talk about food with Jesus, it's not just a conversation about, oh, can the masses have enough to eat? It's a a conversation about how is Christ going to work? That's why Christ's answer sounds so snarky to them. They've already assumed that Jesus isn't good enough or big enough or great enough or kind enough to solve this problem. This problem is too big, so i got to handle it myself. And in that moment, I, I love the disciples because I see myself in the text. How frequently do we do a similar type of thing where as we look at the circumstances in front of us, we, we kind of go, well, you know what? I, I mean, God's not going to do it, so I just got to do it myself. I just got to, I, I got to, I got to get disciplined. I got to get organized. I need a program. I, I got to get my people motivated. We got, we got to do whatever it is. We, we can get it. We can solve it. The interesting thing is, again, they've, they've misunderstood who they're serving. Christ, first, we've seen is compassion incarnate. Secondly, Christ is strategic and wise enough to use difficulty to create faith. Christ is strategic and wise enough to use difficulty to create faith. I I love, really, that's the heart of what the disciples have kind of come to here. No one can solve this problem. No one can fix what's going on. No one can feed the masses. No one can do it. Save God. And they've forgotten that he's in their midst. Jesus, on the other hand, intentionally throws the difficulty back to them, forces them to kind of wrestle with it for a while, forces them to kind of come to the end of themselves, forces them to realize, well, guess what? I'm not big enough to solve this problem. And in doing so, to create faith. 
And I love the fact that it showcases how Christ Jesus interacts with us. Friends, he's no less compassionate today. He's also no less strategic and wise in using your difficulties to create faith in your own life. I mean, James even tells us that. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is part of how God interacts with His people as He intentionally puts us in circumstances and difficulties and trials, not to make us fail, but instead to make us see the end of our abilities. To make us realize that it's outside of our control, to help us to understand our power is too limited, it's too small, but His is not. I love how you think of, again, emotionally how this would have changed the disciples, where every time there's a large crowd after that, do you think they ever kind of, in the back of their minds, were like, I wonder if he's going to do it again. We can't feed him this time. He does do it again, by the way. Feeds 4,000 the next time. It shapes how they think about who God is and, and how he interacts with them and how he showcases his kindness. And friends, I would challenge us just briefly to consider kind of two things in in regards to this specific idea. Our God is so wise that He still uses our difficulties to create faith. One is that it would be incredibly important that in the midst of difficulty, we reflect upon His goodness. That we reflect upon his goodness. You know, uh, as parents, there are times where we intentionally let our kids go through difficulty to make them better people. There are some times where they go through difficulty and we can do nothing to fix it. It's outside of our control. It's outside of our ability. It's outside of our, uh, our, our wisdom and our strength to be able to change anything. We can't make their life any easier. That is interestingly not how God is. Because it's never outside of his control. Every bit of difficulty that he places in your life is designed to produce faith within you. And sometimes it might benefit us to just reflect on the fact that he's doing a lot of working to make a lot of faith. Because sometimes it seems like there's a lot of difficulty. Secondly, is it actually lets us think about our difficulties a little bit differently. A lot of times when we go to think about the challenges and difficulties of our life, we begin to think of the problem as being the other person or the other circumstance. If only I had a different teacher, then it wouldn't be a problem. If only I had a different boss, then it wouldn't be a problem. If only I had a different spouse, then it wouldn't be a problem. If only I had a different child, then it wouldn't be a problem. If only they were different, then it wouldn't be a problem. 
And the interesting thing is, as we begin to think about God using difficulty to create faith in us, the reality of the interaction is not that they're the problem, it's that God is intentionally placing that difficulty in my life to make me different. So even if he were to take away that problematic boss, guess what? Some other form of difficulty is probably going to follow because he's designing it for my good. And he loves me so much, he's not going to let me get off that easily. Difficulty is one of the ways he instructs us, he makes us different. And so when we go to engage with problems and difficulties and challenges, it's important that we reflect that God is good in what he's doing. And the difficulty, the other person's not the problem. It's my lack of faith that is. All right, so uh, misconception number one, the disciples have already made the mistake of thinking, well, uh, no ordinary human can fix this, and Jesus fits that category of no ordinary human. The second kind of mistake that's looming in the back of their mind is uh, really the idea uh, that, that God labors inside the same economy that we do, that he labors from a position of scarcity, What does that mean, a position of scarcity? I I remember actually in middle school, the first time I took an econ class, and the definition of economics first introduced in that middle school class, I don't remember why I remember this, because I don't really enjoy econ that much, but it stuck in my head. Economics is the study of scarcity. It's how limited resources get divvied up and get transacted and get, you know, handled between people. If there's a very limited amount of a thing that's very desirable, the price will be very high. We have a limited amount of diamonds. We have a limited amount of gold. People want those things. They're lovely and beautiful or things like that. We very often, when we interact with our God, we think of Him as the same way I do, laboring from a position of scarcity, that His resources are limited, that He he runs out of things. Now, again, none of us would admit this uh, intellectually. We would never say intellectually that God is limited, uh, but it's more of this kind of emotional standing that we have that when we go to the Lord or when we think about how He's working in this situation, we have this almost subconscious idea that, well, if, if God only had more, He could give me more. If God only had more power, he could give me more power. If God only had more money, he could give me more money. If God only had more goodness, he could give me more goodness. If God only had more resources, then my life would be better. And again, none of us would ever very likely say this out loud. We would never admit to this, but it's intriguing how it's reflected in how we pray. It's, it's like we assume that somehow God's going to run out when we pray. It's interesting, in the New Testament where Jesus talks about prayer, what's probably the most defining attribute of prayer that he mentions? Ask! He's constantly talking about it, ask! Ask! In fact, actually, the the prayer that he teaches the disciples, we call it the Lord's Prayer, what is it all? Well, there's an opening kind of address to the Lord, and then it's a series of, uh, the way our Westminster Confession labels it, petitions. They're all requests. Give us this day our daily bread. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
holy be your name. Deliver us from evil. It's all requests. He, he's told us our interaction with our God is to be defined by asking. Now, interestingly, for many of us, our relationship with our God is defined by our problem-solving. And friends, I'm going to tell you, that is not the same thing. When we have our relationship with our God structured on our problem-solving, we model much more the disciples instead of modeling the response that Jesus desires. Instead, we are to be creatures that are understandably dependent upon our God and are quick to go to Him and to ask for little things and big things and everything in between. To ask. I would love to have seen how this interchange might have been different if the the disciples had come to Him and said, Jesus, we got a huge crowd and we don't have a ton of food, and we don't know what to do. Will you please feed them? I mean, you've been healing all day. You obviously have the power. I don't know what would have happened. It would have been marvelous, I'm sure, because the Lord Jesus would have been involved. Instead, they get this kind of uh, very loving and gentle and compassionate rebuke that trains up their faith, and then instead, what happens, Jesus says, uh, bring the loaves and fish here. They divide everybody up into groups of 50 And Jesus gives thanks, gives a blessing, breaks the bread, serves it to them. And we don't exactly know how the miracle works. It's a miracle. We don't know the exact dynamics. Was it one of those where Jesus had the bread and said, one for you, 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 one for you. And every time he hands a new one, there's still one in his hand. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I can't wait to ask. It'd be lovely to find out. Whatever it is. From five loaves and two fish, you get more than an entire Walmart's worth of food. So much so that you have 12 baskets left over. It makes the point here too, verse 20, specifically that the people are satisfied, which again, thinking through a time in which people were probably very rarely ever satisfied with food. I mean, again, to think, when was the last time these people probably ever felt full? They ate as much as they wanted. What do we do with this? Uh, I suspect, again, going back to our opening illustration, much like the lily pads where we see faulty assumptions produce kind of catastrophic practice, I suspect many of us, uh, not perhaps intellectually, but certainly emotionally, operate on our daily lives and our daily existence that Forgetting that Christ is compassionate. Forgetting that our Christ uses all of the difficulties of my life to intentionally shape me into His own image. Forgetting that there is no limit or lack to God's power or goodness. He he has no limit or lack to His resources. And if it were good and it would bless me, He would give it. It's not like he's running low on money. Well, I got to divide it between all my different children. If only he had more, he could give me more. No, if it would bless me and be good for me, he'd give it. He obviously knows it wouldn't be good for me. He hasn't given it. 
Well, what do we do with this? I would say a couple of points of application briefly to the sermon as a whole. One is this should give us opportunity to just reflect on, on the kindness of Christ Jesus. Again, many of us, we, I think sometimes our faith grows a little bit cold. It grows a little bit kind of calloused. And I suspect because we don't think about just the tremendous generosity that Christ extends to us on a daily basis. And for many cases, many times, it's because we get so caught up with the frustrations that are constantly flashing in front of our eyes that we forget what he's doing with them. We get so caught up in the the heat of the moment of our our anger or the heat of the moment of our joys and our pleasures or our frustrations or whatever they are, and we forget that he's using them. We forget that he's good. We forget that this is his perfect design to make me into the person that he is making me into. I would suggest humbly that it would probably benefit us all when we are confronted with trials of various kinds to just pause for a moment and acknowledge we know our God is good and to thank Him for however He's going to use whatever trial it is. Now, I'll be honest, this is not a thing that most of us are very good at. It's not a thing I'm very good at. To right after the car accident or the fender bender, to pause and just reflect. Lord, you're good. And I know you're going to use this, even though I wish it hadn't happened. Or when we have sickness or sorrow, promotions in our job or whatever else it is, to pause and reflect on the difficulty that he's given Two is again anchor that in, our, in his goodness that even as we think about these challenges to think about how he is good to us. And then lastly, and this is I, I think perhaps most important, recognizing we live in the richest and easiest time in human history is the, the tiny little difficulties that we do get to use them to fuel our longing for the life to come. I'll be honest, again, we, we don't long for heaven traditionally very well in America. The American church, this is not a thing that we excel at. You know, when you've buried ten kids and two wives, it's a little bit easier to long for heaven. Our lives are so lovely, and praise God for that. I'm thankful, right? I, I like how easy my life is. But it does make it hard for us to long for the life to come because we have it so good in this one. It might be a good thing for us to just intentionally contemplate with any little bit of difficulty we have that God is using this to make me ready for heaven and how marvelous he is and how kind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use these uh, light and momentary afflictions to make us more in the image of Christ. Bless us even now, we pray for his sake. Amen.